KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. Welcome back to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. When I'm good, I'm very good. But when I'm bad, I'm better. Okay, that's just a tease of what's to come. As Cinema Junkie returns from holiday break to do an episode all about pre-code Hollywood. Young lady, are you trying to show contempt for this court? No, I'm doing my best to hide it. As one of the volunteer programmers for Film Geek San Diego, I'll be co-presenting two year-long film series at Digital Gym Cinema in San Diego. One is Visions of Science Fiction that provides a diverse sampling of sci-fi films one Monday night a month. And the other is called Breaking the Commandments, Pre-Code Hollywood, which is one Sunday afternoon a month. This pre-code series is dedicated to showcasing films made between 1930 and 1934 in Hollywood. This era has come to be known as pre-code because it was a period of time when the Hollywood film industry chose to ignore the restrictive production code that dictated what could and could not be shown in films. Both series kicked off last month, and Pre-Code Hollywood continues this Sunday with I'm No Angel, and the sci-fi series continues on Monday with the delicious cult film Fiend Without a Face. That's not all. The entire spinal cord is missing. What? It's incredible. It's as if some mental vampire were at work. In order to provide some insight into what Pre-Code Hollywood is all about, I spoke with Danny Reed of Precode.com. He describes himself as dedicated to celebrating Hollywood films released 1930 to 1934, when movies were complex and a hell of a lot of fun. I couldn't agree more. I spoke with Danny briefly for KPBS Midday Edition last month, but here we get to talk about all the films in the series and more in depth about what Precode is all about. I met Danny at the TCM Classic Film Festival, where pre-code films are gloriously showcased. In fact, seeing a series of pre-code Hollywood films at the TCM Festival is precisely what inspired my co-programmer, Miguel Rodriguez, and I to pursue a film series dedicated to movies made during this era. We were thrilled to discover that the cinephiles coming to the Digital Gym Cinema were also interested in these movies and voted to select it as the theme for one of our year-long series in 2019. Pre-code is the time when Mae West could openly proclaim that a hard man is good to find, and Norma Shearer could respond to her husband's adultery with some sleeping around of her own, so she could tell her philandering spouse, I've balanced the accounts. The surprise of these films is how modern they sometimes feel, and in some ways they represent a sort of freedom that Hollywood movies never quite recaptured with the same gusto and deliciousness. I began my interview with Danny Reed by asking him what defines this pre-code era. Pre-code Hollywood's an interesting era in the studios. It's kind of between the start of the talkies, like just right after they've they've firmly established what a talkie is, and it goes from early 1930 to mid 1934, to the point where studios actively had to submit their scripts to get them approved from a censorship board in order to get them made. So the pre-code era is kind of that time between this kind of newfound freedom, newfound art form with the talkies and the mid-1934 where it very much became like you could only make films on certain topics with certain attitudes and which continued from the uh, mid-30s until about the 1950s, 60s. So the production code was on the books during these early years, but what do you think led to Hollywood just disregarding the code and going kind of wild? Well, definitely the Depression is a major factor in there. Uh, 1932, 33, about a quarter of all Americans are out of work. And since going to the movies, which is still pretty much pretty much the only uh, big entertainment option for Americans, was one that took a big hit. Like up until then, movies made money ev- more money every single year than the year before it. And when the Depression hit, studios began to get really worried. Before the Depression, they'd leveraged a lot of their their money, they'd taken out huge loans to turn all these theaters into places with sound, wire all the different theaters across the country. I mean, you have to imagine in 1929, all the major studios, Fox, or Warners, MGM, were spending millions and millions of dollars in 1930s money to go to every theater in every town and put sound equipment in so that their talkies could come in and get appreciated. 
And so they're heavily, heavily leveraged. And so they really had to find a way to not only compete with each other, but compete with, you know, food and basic necessities. So they really kind of went all out there. They, they really felt the freedom to not only be like salacious, you know, with Mae West and going to these, these places that, you know, just to appeal to the baser instincts, but they also felt compelled to show what, what life was really like in America in those times, even if it had a little bit of MGM gloss or a little bit of Warner Brothers edge. They really kind of tried to engage the consumer with exactly what they wanted. And more often than that, you can find a lot more pulpier things, a lot more risque things in this era than you'll find in most Hollywood productions for the next 20, 30 years. Looking at these films from a modern perspective, I'm often surprised by what I find, either scandalous sex comedies or gritty and unsavory portraits of Depression-era life. What do you think it is about these films that continues to fascinate us? What really holds holds interesting in these movies, and you have to understand, you know, it's it's hard nowadays where you have a phone, you have YouTube, you have all these different media access points where, you know, if you want to be entertained and it takes you more than five minutes to be entertained, you're the one doing something wrong. Uh, but back in the day, movie theaters were it. If you wanted to go to the movie theater or if you wanted to spend the night either being, you know, doing, enjoying something, you either went to the movie theater or you listened to the radio and movies were competing with the radio as well. So these movies, they were made over the course of a few weeks and released just a few weeks later. They're just, it makes it really interesting because they're just like little snapshots of an era or an attitude or a feeling. You can see, you know, the rise and fall of the gangster film in a few years or uh, backstage musical comedies, how they, they go on a roller coaster ride from gold diggers of Broadway to gold diggers in 1933 to gold diggers in 1935. And you see how much film changes in just that that brief snapshot of time. There's so much this this era that's just fun and unbridled. The you know the Mae West movies, which I'm sure we'll talk about, where she was a big controversy on Broadway, and she came over to Paramount, and pretty much got to do what she wanted. She made these really interesting statements on 1930s feminism and some stuff that still seems pretty radical. Well, I'm caught between two evils. I generally like to take the one I never tried. I am delighted. I have heard so much about you. Yeah, but you can't prove it. The thing, a lot of these movies were rediscovered kind of in the 60s and 70s when uh, some of the studios actually started pulling stuff actively from their vaults. And people even then were surprised by uh, exactly what they, they got away with and what they could do. I mean, nowadays, some of this stuff does seem kind of trite, but I mean... I watched a movie the other day with a bunch of uh, fart jokes in it, and I'm like, oh, this is 1934. Like, I can't, you know, you don't ever think about what your your great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather watching a movie with fart jokes and laughing his butt off, you know? Danny, you're a young guy. So how did you get interested in these films from the early 1930s? Well, I mean, I always kind of watched older films with my parents. My dad really kind of got me going when he introduced me to the Marx Brothers when I was in high school. Um the big kickoff for just delving into pre-code Hollywood. I've always, I always consume movies like crazy. I just, I literally last week hit my 9,000th rating on IMDb because I just obsessively track things. But uh, the big thing that got me going into pre-code in specific was I rented the Forbidden Hollywood collection from the library. And I just started blogging and I was trying to just create content, which is what everybody tries to do nowadays is content, content, content. I rented the Forbidden Hollywood collection. When I watched The Divorcee, I was just kind of so taken aback by how it looks and like the attitudes in it. I'm glad I've discovered there's more than one man in the world while I'm young and they want me. Believe me, I'm not missing anything from now on. I don't doubt it. Once a woman throws down her fences... Oh, pin it on a motto and hang it where Janice can see it. Stop that. Oh, loose women, great, but not in the home, eh, Ted? Cut it, do you hear? <laughs> the looser they are, the more they get. The best in the world, no responsibility. Well, my dear, I'm going to find out how they do it. So look for me in the future where the primroses grow. And pack your man's pride with the rest. And from now on, you're the only man in the world that my door is closed to. There's so much forgiveness and grace given to Norma Shearer. And that really, like, counterposed, like, a lot of Hollywood movies I'd seen from before then. Um, and since then, I've watched a lot more pre-code films. And you can see where the ripples from that are. But just the divorce age just kind of, like, knocked me back. And, like, Norma Shearer's performance and the look of the movie just kind of bowed me over. So, yeah, really, the divorce age was a big kickoff. Babyface, redheaded woman, which... Redheaded Woman is just pure insanity, and you watch it, and you realize it's like the top ten movies of the year it came out. You're just amazed because that movie has, you know, psych like this main character is basically psychotic. Listen, I'm on my way up to the boss's house with his mail. Why didn't his secretary do it? Because I swiped it off her desk. <laughs> These are important, and they've got to be answered right away. Maybe I'll get a chance to stay and take dictation. What'll that get you? 
Don't be dumb. His wife's in Cleveland. There is nudity in the movie for, you know, 1932, and then there's a happy ending somehow. It's it's just, like, stunning. Like, you you know, it's it's nothing you'd expect from that era, but it's it's fun, and it was insanely popular, so... It's, it's hard to resist stuff like that. One thing about the films from this era, like I'm No Angel, The Divorcee, Redheaded Woman, is that you're struck by how strong these female personalities were. Oh, yeah. Um, it's really interesting. You have to also put yourself back and realize that most of the movie-going population in the early 30s were women. They're the ones with the leisure time. They're the ones who needed to get out and do something with friends. So a lot of movies were geared towards them. And while nowadays there's a definitely a feminist backlash to movies where – you know, like the Joan Crawford movie where they fall in love and the guy turns out to be healing. Joan Crawford says, go be happy. And she suffers. There's a lot of movies where the heroine suffers to the end, but it's still about how strong she is in her suffering. It's not about just making her miserable for the sake of it. And a lot of those movies that we've mentioned too, Redheaded Woman, Anita Luz wrote the screenplay for that. Divorcee is based on a book by Ursula Parrott. There's still a lot of uh, female influence in this era, even though Especially with the like the conglomeration of the big studios in the mid twenties, they started forcing more female filmmakers out of there. There's still Dorothy Arzner, one of the great female directors. She made uh, *Merrily We Go to Hell* in I think '32. That's one of the that's a really great pre-code as well. It's all about alcoholism and uh, Frederick March and Sylvia Sidney give great performances in it. But you're right. Like this is an era dominated by female stars because it's interesting when sound came in, so many male stars just kind of lost their footing. Douglas Fairbanks Sr. was pretty much gone at that point. John Gilbert, uh, his disastrous career. But, you know, people who came in, you get this is the era of Cagney and Gable. They're just kind of hard, brusque men, but they're just so, you know, charismatic and fascinating. But they're charismatic and fascinating from a woman's perspective as well. I don't know. There's there's a lot of interesting things going on here, but you're right. The This is a really great area for strong female protagonists. Well, one of the films we're going to be showing in our pre-code series is I'm No Angel, and this is Mae West, and she was really a force behind the camera as well as in front of the camera. She definitely had a lot of say over her movies. Uh, it was based on one of her her plays. West had been arrested in New York on obscenity charges for performing her play called Sex, which nowadays the play itself sounds kind of trite, but back then it was a, it was a revelation. And Mae West is one of those really fascinating figures who, you know, openly hung out with homosexuals and transsexuals. And she was just very freewheeling and a very big personality in a time where it was just completely out of left field. So what had happened in the early 30s is that the censorship board back in the early 30s had said no studios are allowed to make a movie with Mae West. It's just, it's, you know, it'll just, it'll destroy America. Don't do it. But by 1932, 1933, things were dire enough that Paramount said, may you come here and you make whatever the heck you want. I'm No Angel and the follow-up, She Done Him Wrong, were two of the top grossing movies of the year. She Done Him Wrong was nominated for Best Picture, which is insane. But the I'm No Angel is probably her best movie. It's really interesting as kind of a statement on her values. I mean, there's an entire court battle at the end where she justifies her entire man-eating persona and she you knows i think she gets a standing ovation at the end mm, lovely tie now mr brown ain't you the man that had the five wives uh uh yeah and you was married to one of them when you stepped out with me wasn't you mm, yes mm, she now you made it sound kind of nasty the way you spoke about us two being alone together in my place and you know nothing actually happened that you couldn't tell your grandchildren about well uh i uh... in other words it was just a harmless little social date wasn't it yeah. Okay, I'm through with you. I'm a doom. She's just got such a beautiful way with words. I was telling somebody what the other day my favorite one is probably uh, a hard man is good to find. Um, you know, stuff along those lines where she just plays with double entendres, and it's just for the time, and even today, they're they're startlingly um, fun and pointed and really kind of speak to a lot of the hypocrisy apparent in our current patriarchal society. And she could also make a completely non-double entendre sound suggestive. Yeah, she definitely, she had a really good handle on on using her body and using her words. And that's why she's such a great cinematic force. In some of her films, too, she had some amazingly suggestive songs. The one that I always remember is, Where Has My Easy Rider Gone? I've lost since Miss Susan Johnson, she lost my jockey lead. There's been much excitement and more to be. You can hear her moaning from early morn. I wonder why. 
Talking about actresses, one of the things you mentioned Norma Shearer in The Divorcee, and we're going to be showing that film as well. And one of the things about that that I think is kind of striking for a contemporary audience to look back on is that she's allowed to kind of fool around and be unfaithful in the same manner as her husband and not have to be punished for it. I mean, there are people who would argue that ending back up with Chester Morris is a punishment. But, uh, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. She really does. The whole movie is her. She realizes her uh, husband has been unfaithful to her. So she says, I'm going to, you know, no man's door. Only man's door who's closed to me now is yours. And so she goes on this wild cavorting. She ends up being Conrad Nagel's mistress, which is not great, but, you know, still fun. So she really does do the, the freewheeling divorcee. So divorcee had a cachet back in the day of just these sexually experienced women who were, who were, who were very worldly and they really play with that. It's a really interesting movie. It feels very adult, very driven, but it's also very sexy. Definitely the scenes where uh, Sheer uh, balances the books with her husband, with Robert Montgomery, who's never looked better than that movie, in my opinion. She definitely exudes this kind of worldliness and intelligence that a lot of movies don't have. And she, you know, you, you're always with her. You understand why she's doing this. And you can also see what's making her happy and what isn't. Um, a lot of people think the ending is kind of a cop-out. I think it, it does make sense based on what, what happened before. But you are kind of rooting for her to break free over the 1930s, even though she doesn't quite make it there. You also had brought up Barbara Stanwyck and Babyface. And this is kind of one of the the grittier films that came out during this time and but it looks kind of very clear-eyed at women who don't have a lot of options and who may get used by men yeah babyface is absolutely fascinating um it takes this uh character who's been treated like as a prostitute her entire life by her father which is gross and then um reads her nietzsche philosophy that tells her to get ahead using any means necessary well, the future looks very bright. Just as I was leaving the cemetery, Ed Sippel made me a proposition. And last night, the manager of the starring guard of Burlesque House offered me a job in the chorus to do a strip act. A strip act? Yeah, show my shape. Well, that's a business in itself. Oh, I guess I ain't much of a businesswoman. What's going to become of you? It's up to you to decide. If you stay in this town, you are lost. Where would I go, Paris? I got four bucks. That's what makes me mad with you. You're a coward. I mean it. You let life defeat you. You don't fight back. What chance has a woman got? More chance than men. A woman young, beautiful like you can get anything she wants in the world because you have power over men. But you must use men, not let them use you. You must be a master, not a slave. Look, here. Nietzsche says, all life. No matter how we idealize it, is nothing more nor less than exploitation. That's what I'm telling you. Exploit yourself. Go to some big city where you will find opportunities. Use men. Be strong. Defiant. Use men to get the things you want. So you literally follow her as she works her way up a build office building through managers and subordinates until she's married to the head guy of the entire bank. And there's really very little subtlety. The movie is very frank with exactly what she's doing, how she's working the working things in her favor. Uh, it's really interesting. Her character is so um, hard bitten and boiled, but you still completely believe in her and have faith in her. And it's it's babyface is so interesting. The movie itself was censored on release. It was so controversial. Uh, it had, they had to, the original ending wasn't shot, then they shot a different ending, and then they had to go back and shoot a completely different ending, like a fake, really happy ending, which is just gross and weird. But thanks to the magic of living 80 years later, we can see the originally shot ending, which is, which isn't great, but it's also very dark and very bitter about just what kind of, um, what, what can happen to you and way life is and the way the world is. Uh, Babyface is a great movie for seeing how the world looked to the Great Depression and seeing how little power women at the time had. 
Stanwyck's character has a friend named Chico, a black woman, um, and they really stick together, work, you know, they have to survive together. It's really interesting to see that dynamic because you definitely don't get a lot of that outside of your, uh, outside your imitation of life's. And kind of an even darker take on, on kind of the same terrain as Babyface is the story of Temple Drake. Story of Temple Drake is another really interesting movie. Uh, it really adapts a William Faulkner novel that's really was considered like indecent that goes into it has all sorts of things like rape and prostitution that happen to this poor character. But the way the film ends up being made, it just kind of vanished, but it was so controversial, like the subjects. And it really, there's really no subtlety to exactly what temple drake goes through it's one of those movies it's very stylishly shot i think it was a paramount film miriam hopkins is one of the great starlets of the pre-code era who really didn't survive the era very well uh, unfortunately she kind of got typecast as high-pitched shrews and betty davis movies after after 1934 but she's in a lot of really uh, great and daring movies and she's super she's one of those actresses who just conveys the sense of intelligence and daring and Temple Drake, you get to see her kind of horrified. But then in other movies made at the time, especially something like Designed for a Living, she's a much more flirtatious and coquettish brilliance, you know? Yes, we're also showing Designed for a Living. And since we bring that up, that brings up Ernst Lubitsch, the director. And Designed for a Living is one of those films that is so kind of delightfully suggestive in, <laughs> in both its language and visual style. Yeah. Oh, well, Lubitsch is like one of the greatest film, like if not the greatest filmmaker, he is the one of the greatest filmmakers. He has just such a beautiful way of dialogue and using the camera to suggest and entice and, indu- you know, seduce. Design for a Living is really interesting, especially when you pair it with his movie from the previous year, Trouble in Paradise, which both movies kind of involve a love triangle. Uh, but in Trouble in Paradise, it's a man with two women, and in Design for a Living, it's a woman with two men. And in Design for a Living, it's very blatant about how Miriam Hopkins wants to sleep with both men, and how the two men, uh, Frederick March and Gary Cooper, kind of have to make do with, you know, being the other, you know, being with each other. It's a gentleman's agreement. Maybe a bit difficult in the beginning. But it can be worked off. Oh, it'll be grand. Save lots of time. It's true we have a gentleman's agreement. But unfortunately, I am no gentleman. It's it's super fun. It's very interesting, like just how how much he has to use euphemism and how much he can get away with saying, and luckily Lubitsch was considered such an artist because he was, that he actually got away with a lot more than a lot of other filmmakers did. But the design for a living is just like nowadays, even it seems so free and so, so glorious, I guess. And he was known, I mean, Ernst Lubitsch was known for the Lubitsch touch. So he's somebody who has this particular kind of grace and style and, and is associated with these kind of uh, screwball comedies, I guess. Yeah, you could say the screwball. They're just very, very charming, very witty. Like, there's a lot of good use of dialogue and, like, visual metaphor in both Design for Living and Trouble in Paradise. He just really uses the camera to make make things just, I mean, Trouble in Paradise, the title zooms in. It starts with Trouble in, and it's superimposed over a bed. It takes a minute for the word paradise to pop up. There's a lot of real wit in his movies. Like, I've been trying to track down all of his films, and it's a very worthwhile endeavor. He just never disappoints now, I actually met you at one of the TCM film festivals, and they make a point of highlighting some of these pre-code films. And one of the ones that I got to see at the festival that was a total surprise and a total delight was something called Cock of the Air. I'm so glad you guys got Cock of the Air. That movie is is, is so, I mean, it's not a great film. Like, don't get me wrong. But it's so interesting. Like, the restoration they did on that, they... um. They found the censored version, and eventually, like years later, they found the uncensored footage, and they had to recreate the dialogue from the censored footage in the script. So you really see how the they censored the movies, like how exactly they they looked at films and what they would cut away at the time to try and make it seem less uh, offensive to the many conservative audiences out there. So Cock of the Air is such a great example of how movies are censored and how that can completely change things. There's like an entire 10-minute sequence that gets excised 
where like she's I think she's running around in a suit of armor. And so because they get rid of that, because there's some very suggestive stuff that happens, they have to cut around it in different era. You know, like one point says two things and then the one thing gets cut out and the second thing doesn't because the first thing refers to another part that got cut out. So it's very much interesting seeing the movie as like a puzzle and how exactly they did that and then trying to imagine what the movie would be like with the footage missing. Cock of the Air is very goofy and very fun. but It's just it's a really great example of of movies and how they they were treated at the time. Yeah, that one was so much fun at the TCM Film Festival that when we were debating what films to show, and I, I will say it was a very difficult process to narrow it down to, originally we were going to only show 12 films, one a month, and then we threw in a couple double bills because we had such a hard time <laughs> doing it. <laughs> Oh yeah, I know how that is. Yeah, it's hard to pick your favorite sometimes, and there you uh, you did pick like a lot of really great examples. I'm glad you're showing Island of Lost Souls on Halloween or White Zombie, both those in October. Yes, those would be a lot of fun. Well, and that's another aspect of these pre-code films is there was uh, there there was a subgenre of horror films that came out during this time that were able to do some things that they weren't able to do in some later films. And we have Island of Lost Souls, White Zombie, Mask of Fu Manchu, and Most Dangerous Game are the the four kind of horror-esque films that we're showing. Yeah, I mean, um, not to take too far away, this is also the time where Dracula, The Mummy, Invisible Man, all those movies, all the universal horror movies were coming out. So you have this really interesting era where they're kind of pushing back at what science can do, what mysticism is, what exactly uh, you could do in a horror film that it's a talkie. You know, it's a long way from the cat and the canaries in these movies, especially like uh, Mask of Fu Manchu with its really wild and out there racism, which also features a scene of Myrna Loy ordering a white man whipped while she clearly gets sexually excited by it, which is a lot of fun. And then The Most Dangerous Game has all these, it was one of the probably the most compact adventure movies ever made. Island of Lost Souls has the really weird, you know, look at crossing humans and animals and where the line between a human is and what an animal is. It also has gone into by uh, Murders of the Rue Morgue, which is another very messed up movie. Uh, Then White Zombie has another horror element about like, you know, self-control, who's in control. You know, all these movies kind of deal with the, the uncertainties that kind of lie around the edges of life. Um, and that was a real big fascination for the era. And since this is very much, you know, beginning of the talkies, there's a lot of new blood making movies. You get a lot of really great films that, that aren't afraid and that, you know, because they can take these extra risks come across a lot darker and a lot weirder than, than movies that you'll get definitely later down the line. Well, and then in Mask of Fu Manchu and Island of Lost Souls, you get the kind of exotic sexual woman in those. Oh yeah, but but seeing Myrna Loy as this Asian femme fatale, when we know that later on she's going to become the picture of domestic perfection in the Thin Man, as you know, Nora Charles to William Powell's Nick Charles is so fascinating. Yeah, Loy went through such a fascinating career just because they really had no idea what to do with her in the the silent movie. She's popping up in supporting roles in. Um, Thief of Baghdad. I think she's one of the girls in the. I think she's a villainess. I can't remember exactly, but she, she definitely plays like this exotic woman in a lot of movies. One you didn't get, but it's also a lot of fun. Is Thirteen Women, which is like one of the first slasher films, where she's a, a Javanese killer murdering thirteen women who mocked her in college. Not thirteen. I mean, the movie's called Thirteen Women. She only kills like eleven people, but it's one of those those things where she was just very much just like. Yeah, she's Asian. Just we'll make her Asian in all these movies, and then uh, eventually she was in Love Me Tonight, which kind of helped change her career more towards comedy. And then uh, she she eventually evolved with the Thin Man movies into America's Perfect Wife, and you have her doing movies like The Best Years of Her Lives. So it's a, it's a really weird roller coaster from Mask of Fu Manchu to Best Years of Our Lives. But she's just a perfect professional in all these movies. She's just so much fun to watch and. Yeah, And in Most Dangerous Game, we have Fei Rei, who is also in the King Kong movie. And uh, in both King Kong and Most Dangerous Game, she exposes quite a bit of flesh, which <laughs> kind of became a, a, a bit of a signature for her in those films. Yeah, Fei Rei was um, RKO's workhorse. They put her in a lot of movies. I think there are, there are cut scenes. I've seen the stills from them from King Kong where you see a lot of Fei Rei, like you definitely are not supposed to say. Uh, or it's supposed to see. 
Um, Faye Ray was great in Three in the Time. She made a lot of really wild movies. She was in really one really good one where she played a lady lawyer. Faye Ray played a lot of like very independent women. She'd kind of come over from the silent era as this great beauty, and she ended up being in all kinds of films. Uh, she's in Viva Villa with with Wallace Beery. She plays this woman who you think is going to be the romantic interest, but instead she just insults him and torments him, and he kills her. And it's a lot of fun just to see her become this crazy wild harpy. Um, so, but you're you know you're used to the Fay Ray scream. She didn't just do uh, King Kong. She also did, during this time made the the two best two strip technicolor films, which were Murders and no no Murders in the Remorse. Sorry, Doctor X and Murders in the Wax Museum. Which um, she definitely gets her the mileage out of her scream in both those films. Um, and those are great to track down. They're very beautiful movies. Now, one thing we haven't touched on yet from the pre-code period are the musicals. And we're going to be showing Gold Diggers of 1933. And what were the musicals kind of tapping into that that hit a, hit a real chord with audiences? It's important to remember that in 1929, musicals were brand new. You couldn't really do a musical in a silent film. So um, the musical genre goes through such a, a wild ride through the early 1930s because the initial musicals were so wildly popular that just made musical after musical after musical. So by 1930, like late 1930, people were just refusing to see them on principle. They went from making like a thousand musicals in 1930 to making like 200 the next year and even fewer after that until um, Busby Berkeley came and made 42nd Street at Warner's. And that movie was such a revelation that it kind of revived the entire genre. And the great thing about Busby Berkeley at Warner's is he was at the studio that was very much uh, sought to portray the troubles of the of the you know the small man, the forgotten man, the the common man. So Forty Second Street and uh, Footlight Parade are all very like gritty, kind of have like a fun edge to them. But this is the studio that made I Am a Fugitive from the Train Ga- Chain Gang and uh, Public Enemy. So Gold Diggers in 1933, which I will say is my favorite movie ever made, Gold Diggers of 33 is kind of this melding of all these different sensibilities, all these different moments that Warner Brothers, it kind of everything they've been building up to in terms of light comedy and great supporting cast of, of talky stars for the era, uh, mixed with this very sense, this very real sense of despair and frustration based on like a quartet of female characters who are all very distinctive and have their own personalities and their own feelings going through this really light comedy plot, but it also ends with an amazing gut punch um, about just how we treat people and how how America's doing at the time. I don't know if he deserves a bit of sympathy. Forget your sympathy. It's all right with me. I was satisfied to drift along from day to day till they came and took my man away. Remember my forgotten man? You put a rifle in his hand. You sent him far away. You shouted, hip hooray. But look at him today. Remember my forgotten man. You had him cultivate the land. He walked behind a plow. The sweat fell from his brow. But look at him right now. And once he used to love me. I was happy then. He used to take care of me. Won't you bring him back again? Cause ever since the world began, a woman's got to have a man Forgetting him, you see Means you're forgetting me Like my My forgotten man Remember my forgotten man really is an amazing film. I love it to death. And one of the things that some of these musicals did is they enjoyed kind of the backstage aspect. And that was kind of a twofold thing. One, I think audiences enjoyed seeing kind of what goes on behind the scenes, but also it allowed for them to indulge in a lot of women changing and lingerie. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, there was, there's definitely a reason why um, there's a lot of vital dialogue in a lot of these films that said while well, women are getting dressed. Um, definitely Gold Diggers of 1933 has a lot of skin in it. Uh, the petting in the park number is not subtle about what people are doing in the park. It might go a little bit beyond petting. Um, and that number ends with all the women have... Well, first off, you see all the women changing behind a screen. That are ba- then they're all backlit. So you, you get to see... You get to like a lot of these movies. You get to let your imagination do a lot, and then they all end up in basically tin undergarments, you know, just to protect them from the men. The last shot of the musical number is Dick Powell smiling as he pulls out a can opener. There's a lot of like very sexual moments in a lot of these films, and I will say I think a lot of it's actually pretty sexy, which is I don't know something I don't see a lot nowadays, where it, it's a kind of a healthy interest in female and male relationships. Now, uh, another one of the strong actresses that came up during this period, and she did musicals, and she did dramas, and she did comedies, is Joan Crawford. And it was very difficult to pick one film that she was in, but we have Possessed. Yeah, Joan Crawford's always been someone I've kind of struggled with, because when you start getting into movies, like, I mean, I can't, I'm a, I'm a dude. That's, that's a sad fact of the matter. When I started getting into movies, you read so many horror stories about Joan Crawford, the shoulder pads, the, you know, the mommy dearest, all that stuff. It's really hard to go back and appreciate. I mean, for me, I know probably for other people it's a lot easier, but it was hard for me to go back and be able to appreciate her films. But you see her in stuff back in the early 1930s where she she makes these movies. She makes a lot of movies about working girls who suddenly get it all, but they lose the man they loved along the way. Possessed is one of the one of the best ones. Uh, it's her with Clark Gable, which they were a fantastic pairing. And it just really kind of highlights the the difficulties in the relationship she had and that, that world she worked in and just how much a woman kind of had to rely on a man to be able to put food in her mouth. Possessed is a great one. Sadie McKee is another great one from the time where Crawford just has this, this power and this strength. And um, it's really easy to satirize uh, Crawford. I mean, they did all the time back then, too. But she does have such a great screen presence. I mean, uh, my favorite film of hers is still humoresque, but she does so many great movies, especially around this time, that it's. It, I don't blame you for It's hard to choose, for sure. It is. And another one who was hard to choose was finding one from Jean Harlow, who was quite a saucy actress back in the day. And uh, we decided to go with Dinner at Eight just because she gets to play off of Marie Dressler in such fun ways. I was reading a book the other day. Reading a book? Yes, it's all about civilization or something. A nutty kind of a book. Uh, Do you know that the guy says that machinery is going to take the place of every profession? Oh, my dear. That's something you need never worry about. <laughs> I mean, that's, that movie does have, like, the best closing of any film for, you know, pretty much of all time. But Harlow really has a lot of fun with that one. The, Harlow is such an interesting case because she pretty much is the the most popular actress. I think at least... One of her films is in the top 10 of highest grossing movies every year in the early 1930s. And she has this this very much personality where it just seems like a dumb blonde. But, you know, just like Jane Mansfield or Marilyn Monroe, there's so much more going on underneath. Um, she really stands up for her own um, movies like uh, Redheaded Woman and Red Dust. She really you can tell she has this heart and this soul and she's a very realistic character, a real human one. Um, and Dinner 8 is a lot of fun because she really gets to kind of be the counterpoint to all the snobs in the film, the Barrymores, and the, and then she gets to deflate a lot, Wallace Beery a lot, which is always great, great time. And we decided to end our series with a gangster double feature, and we're going to be showing Scarface with Paul Muni and Public Enemy with Jimmy Cagney, and these films, I have to say, they're very different from the other ones. They're not light comedies. They're not um, kind of. Uh, sex comedies are fun in that respect, but they have a grit to them and kind of a way of looking at the world at that time that is still kind of, um, I don't know if I'd say shocking, but it's surprising to find that in these films from the early 1930s. 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of gangster movies from then to now are very much still influenced by them. Like De Palma's Scarface obviously takes a lot from the original. Scorsese definitely takes a lot from Public Enemy as well. Um, Public Enemy has one of the great downbeat endings for the time. People don't remember that, though. But Cagney plays that movie so brilliantly. It's hard to it's really hard to believe that he wasn't the originally the lead of the film. He was supposed to be the sidekick, if you can imagine. Um, Scarface is a like really great movie. Um, Howard Hawks directs the hell out of it. Uh, there's um, the there's considered the three main gangster movies from this time, which are Scarface, Public Enemy, and Little Caesar. And each one, the main characters have a kind of a an offbeat obsession because these movies were made because it's really easy. they're full of violence, they're full of sex, but they're also supposed to be kind of a, a public warning because gangsters really were a problem then. Prohibition didn't end till uh, Roosevelt was elected in '32, so these um, you know you know bad gin and poisoned alcohol and gang wars and violence were, and massacres and kids getting killed on the street. These were real concerns at the time. So Scarface and Public Enemy, while there's definitely kind of a celebration of the gangster, because at the time that, that kind of outlawness was a lot more interesting than the Hoover police officers who weren't really doing anything about it. These movies uh, really kind of take and try to make, had to, had to go to the extremes to make their main characters look bad. So in Scarface, you kind of have the incestuousness between Tony and his sister, played by the amazing Anne Dvorak. And then in Public Enemy, you have um, Cagney's love for his mom, which is just very deep, but also a little weird. Uh, And then Little Caesar has the whole uh, homosexual element to it, but you're not showing that, so we don't have to get into it. Well, and those gangster films, too, they had such a pace to them. And and the, the way they depicted the violence was really impactful. Yeah, they do. They really do portray this stuff because it, this is the stuff they saw on the front page every day. And you're right about the speed. Like most movies of this era were probably around an hour long, 70 minutes, um, 90 minutes if you really have a lot of money to burn. But uh, a lot of these movies just move so fast. Uh, there's a lot of great ones. You're showing Night Nurse as well, which I didn't talk about. But Night Nurse, I think, is around 60 minutes. And it's just thing after thing after thing. It leaves you breathless. It just goes so fast. But they're so well assembled, like they just they move and they click. And it's a lot of fun to watch. They really kind of perfected that that sort of editing and pacing where they're getting the audience in and out because they need to make the money. But they're also telling these these stories as hard and fast as they can. Well, and that pace and the, the short length of the films is one of the reasons why we double build a few of them, because, you know, at 60 and 70 minutes, you can put two of them on a double bill like you might have seen, you know, in some of the theaters back then. Yeah, especially like back then, you know, you just went, you paid 25 cents, and you sat in the theater until you got to the part you hadn't seen before. It's so hard to imagine just walking into a movie in the middle of the movie and just trying to figure everything out. But um, some of these movies definitely just, you'll notice like around every 10 minutes, they'll recap everything you've seen and just like, oh, okay, that's for, that's for the people who got in late, trying to figure out what's going on. And th- but that also leads to some of these movies where every 10 minutes, something wildly different happens and you're imagining somebody walking in. And that has nothing to do with the beginning of the movie. And then the beginning of the movie starts, they think they're in a different film. <laughs> you know, it's it's a very interesting era for just how movies were made and assembled. And because of the way they were shown and because of the, the depression, it just really affected how much. It's just really interesting how different movies were as an entity, not just how they're shown now, but how they were then. Now, you've dedicated uh, a blog to writing about pre-code films. It, what have you kind of discovered over this the course of running the blog in terms of uh, are there things that you've discovered about the films or kind of insights that you've formed regarding them? Well, I, I started I, when I watched the divorce, I kind of felt this this and after I kind of fell in love with the era, I felt like, you know, it'd be really great to just know something, you know, like know the ins and out of a certain year. There's there's other blogs like doing 70s movies or do certain years, certain directors. And I felt like I really just wanted to know this era really well so that I would be able to appreciate all the subtleties. And it's interesting because then you start getting jokes in other movies because, you know, like in the 1930s, this happened. But this, you know, it wouldn't make sense to you unless you caught this reference in a different film. I, I just feel like it's so interesting to see to kind of follow careers along. Like I've seen all the Barbara Stanwyck pre-codes now. I've seen all the Cagney pre-codes. I've seen almost all of the Joan Blondell pre-codes, which is like 30 movies. She made like 30, 60 movies in in four years because Warner's had no problem working people to death. And you really do see like the different experiences and how how repetitive plots could be, but how different filmmakers could handle them. You get a really good feel of like what people felt was acceptable back then and what wasn't. 
um, especially when you first start off in the talkies, you really see like a lot of experimentation with, with you know, in like 1927 through 30, you see a lot of experimentation with how you could shoot dialogue scenes or where you can shoot them. And then you kind of, you can kind of feel their joy when they figure something out. Like in 1930s, The Big House, there's an entire scene set um, or entire shot in a solitary confinement uh, ward where you're just looking down a hallway and there's two people on opposite side of the hallway having conversation. You can't see them because they're locked up in solitary confinement. You can just hear them and you, you stop and you think, oh yeah, they couldn't have done this shot four years prior. No, it wouldn't made a sense at all. You know, other things too, like the lawyer picture really took off during this time. There really wasn't uh, the ability for you to have 20 minute ending, you know, arguments before this. And then you have Lionel Barrymore stand up in the middle of a free soul and just belt out his entire life story. And it just, this whole era you watch as things evolve and they change I really like watching how how movies got away with stuff from 1930 to 1934. You can see a visible difference. Like I'm at the point where I can I can pretty much tell you a year the movie was made just based on watching it without having to know even that small period just because of different techniques that are being used, different sets, different actors, and just how by 1934 it really felt like everything was kind of going off the rails. You have movies that are so risque and out there that you can you can start to understand why they would want to censor them because they were really just getting into stuff like Tarzan and her mate where there's there's uh, full nudity and stuff like that there's just so many uh, ways in which they kept pushing and pushing and pushing and it feels like a, a train just going 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 so there's a lot of really interesting things you can observe just by diving into these years and then I always kind of Sometimes I'll watch movies from 1935 and it feels like getting slapped in the face like, oh, wow, okay. Now and things are different. Okay. so. And if people want to find your blog, uh, where can they read it? Uh, it's precode.com, P-R-E-C-O-D-E.com. I update, usually try and do it once a week, usually with new reviews. And then I also uh, lay out the schedules every month for what's showing on TCM. Um, I also blog every year from the TCM Film Festival in April, usually April. And I post other things. I have a Patreon if you want to subscribe. I usually post or send out fun stuff. So um, there's a big archive. I think I've reviewed about 600 movies, pre-code films on there. So you should be able to find something to watch, I hope. And if not, you're way more picky than I am. So Is there going to be a day when you run out of pre-code films to look at? I, I, technically, yes. <laughs> at some point, um, there's stuff still locked in the vaults that I can't get to. And I, I did um, – you can use IMDb and you can use certain filters – I did figure out if I, I continue on the path of watching or reviewing for every month that I'll, I'll eventually run out of pre-code films in about 20 years. So uh, when that day comes, then I can I can hang up my keyboard with a sense of satisfaction. But until then, still going. And is it hard to find some of them to watch? Uh... Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, it's there's a lot of different factors. Um, ownership is one. Uh, like movies that fall into the public domain are very easy to find, like uh, – like a uh, most dangerous game, but then you get to stuff where Warner brothers, thankfully, thank God owns the MGM and RKO and Warner brothers. They own all those films and they're very dedicated to putting them on DVD and making them available. So that's fantastic. It makes me super happy. Uh, universal and paramount or well, paramount doesn't own their universe, own their films from that time. So universal who owns the paramount universal films from that time are very slow and very much just um, will charge you $20 for a single film from the era and they don't put them on digital at all. It's just very frustrating. So you really kind of, it's really kind of a, a blessing when you get to get one of those. But even then, there's so much that is still in the archives that, you know, it's hard to restore. It's hard to, you know, it's there's like one copy and one in the Library of Congress that you have to check out. Um, there is one universal movie, The uh, Seed from 1930 with Genevieve Tobin in it. I went to UCLA Film Archive and they have one DVD copy of it. And I had to watch that, and uh, the DVD stops working halfway through. So, yay! Hope I know. Hope I can figure out how that ends someday. Um, yeah, the, it's really interesting, just because there's so much territorial fights over copyright and who owns what. Um, one movie I spent a long time tracking down, I finally watched, was uh, George White's Scandals in 1934, which I can 100% real understand why they wouldn't. Nobody would be making an effort to put that on DVD or video or anything, because there is some insanely racist stuff in there. Um, but it's it's one of those things where um, studios are very much about the bottom line, and because these movies are all still under copyright, they're just orphans. They're not gonna they're gonna languish in vaults until either public domain catches up with them, or very very dedicated people go out and pry them out of the vaults at film festivals or the like. 
So it's kind of that's kind of the fun thing about my blog is trying to track stuff down because it really can become kind of an adventure on its own. That was Danny Reed of Precode.com. The Film Geek San Diego Precode Hollywood series continues February 3rd at 1 p.m. with Mae West in I'm No Angel. Cinema Junkie comes out every other Friday, and if you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes or recommend it to a friend. You listening right now are the best ambassadors we have for getting new listeners. Thanks to everyone who's already left reviews and shared the podcast. Cinema Junkie will have something for Black History Month and the TCM Film Festival coming up, and maybe a surprise from the archives, since I have three decades of interviews to pull from. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.